Let's take our Bibles and go to the book of Revelation. We're in the last two weeks in our study in Revelation. So tonight, my two favorite chapters, I think, in all the Bible. So if you would turn to Revelation chapter 19 and Revelation chapter 20, as we start to move toward the end, we've seen a lot, and we've moved through the book of Revelation pretty quickly. I did that intentionally. And in just a few weeks, we'll move on to a new series. Um, I'm looking forward to that. But now it's coming to the end. What have we seen so far? We've seen God really doing a work in the world, a work of judgment. And, but in the midst of the judgment, we've seen God calling people again to repentance. That even in this time of tribulation, in the time of final judgment, God's hand is still stretched out, inviting people to repent. And some would, and we've seen the remnant of believers that will rise up in the last days to come, but then others who will not. Yes, there's not a handout tonight, so my apologies, but we'll go now to chapter number 19 as we move toward the final scenes in the book of Revelation. So part one this week, part two next week. Revelation 19 And after all these things, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God, for true and righteous are his judgments. Now, this reminds us of what we studied last week. It says, for he hath judged the great whore, which did corrupt the earth with her fornication and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. And again, they said, Alleluia. And her smoke rose up forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshiped God that sat on the throne saying, would you go ahead and say it with me? Amen. Alleluia. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you'd help us tonight as we study this amazing passage. I pray that our hearts would be stirred as we see the your awesome power on display. I pray that we'd be encouraged to know the the magnificence of your might and the wonder of your plan. So please lead us, guide us. I need your help. And we as a church, we need the moving of the Holy Spirit among us tonight. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So you noticed a few things in just this first section that we read. Some of what you noticed was a direct reference to the previous chapter. The previous chapter was what we studied last week, and that is Uh, Babylon the Great, and we studied this idea of the alliance of the world powers with the false religion that has persisted from the very earliest days of Genesis. So really some major biblical themes all are coming into focus and coming to a conclusion. Really the story of humanity and its struggle, uh, in its struggle, really Satan's struggle against God and humanity's role in that is all coming to the grand conclusion here in chapter number 19. So to get a little context, you'd have to go back and uh, re-listen to the study from last time. But something else you'll notice is who is present? Notice with me in these first few verses, who is present and how does this tie us back to, in many ways, where we began? Who's present in these verses? And the first section of chapter 19. What is the what is the scene? What is the the location where this is happening? Yes. It's happening in heaven. And where did we first see this scene that we're introduced to in chapter 19? Where's the first time this appeared? Does anybody remember? 
Yeah, absolutely. It was in chapter 5. In chapter 5, when John is brought into the throne room and he sees the four beasts and he sees the four and twenty elders and he sees the lamb, the lion of Judah appears as a lamb that was slain. And remember, there's a roll, there's a book. And when that book is, is brought forth, everybody says what? Who is, who is worthy to open the book? And Jesus comes and he opens the book. And that's what began the events of Revelation. We're, we're still there. We're still in that amazing scene in heaven. And so he's back there. And I believe, listen, we should, we should get a glimpse and, and in our mind's eye, get in a, imagine that as best we can. I do believe that you and I as believers of this era, we will be present in this great throne room someday. I believe that our voices will be the ones shouting, Alleluia. So don't read this as just a, don't read this as just a, some kind of fanciful or a fantasy story event. This is a coming reality for the children of God. This is where history is headed, everybody. So if we could just get away from, uh, just for a minute, detach ourselves from the mundane, detach ourselves from the bills we have to pay and the jobs we have to go to and the groceries we have to buy and the kids that we've got to get in line and the stuff we've got to do tomorrow. If we've just got to, if we can just for a minute detach ourselves from the mundane around us and realize that this is all heading somewhere. There's a grand and glorious purpose of our lives. If, if nothing else, the book of Revelation should encourage you as a believer that there is a destination where this is headed. We're not moving aimlessly through the universe. Well, let's read on. So there's this great Alleluia chorus that's going to sound in heaven when the, the victory is, is, is right there. Verse number five, and a voice came out of the throne saying, praise our God, all ye his servants and ye that fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude and as the voice of many waters and as the voice of mighty thundering saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him. For the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made ready herself. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. We'll comment on the marriage of the Lamb in just a moment, but I want you to notice the great, the continued praise and worship that's taking place. And all I can think of is, is you know, we have very often very subdued expressions of worship, right? You'll sit in a church service or sing a song and just, mm, 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 right? Well, there is a, this worship scene in heaven is anything but that. Now, I'm not saying it's, it's, it's wild, but it is vibrant. It is energized. There is a glorious worship of the King of Kings. And I think of the all of the emotion, and we see this, we see this on display in different ways. You see this kind of emotional expression at, at really in a in a sporting event. I mean, just think about think about all of the. Uh, I watched a little bit of the of the NCAA tournaments and all of the drama and emotion that was building and building and building. And you watch the tension of the game going back and forth, back and forth. And when the victory is secured by the winning team, it's this just release of energy, 
that just explodes out in this exuberance. You see the same thing in a greater way. Uh, in the, if you, how many remember seeing all of the, the footage or the pictures and the photographs from the end of World War II? You know what I'm talking about? And the, and the parades in the streets. And the, because there's years and years of tension and angst and anxiety, all of that building and building and building, and finally it's announced that the victory has been won and there's this exuberant release of joy, praise, and celebration. Well, folks, this is the ultimate victory of all of the ages. I don't think I, could, I can adequately explain it tonight except just to say that, that this is all of the anxiety and the drama and the tension that's built through all of human history is now coming to a final end, a final conclusion the victory, though we know intellectually that, that Christ will have the victory, in this day it will be felt, it will be experienced, it will be grasped, it will be laid hold of. And we will shout, Alleluia, praise and honor and glory. What a day. Now, part of that celebration is not just a victory celebration, but did you notice, look down in verse 7 and following, it's not just a victory celebration, but what other type of celebration is it? Yeah, it's a wedding celebration. There's a victory celebration and a wedding celebration because the bride is ready for the wedding day. Who is the bride? Who is the bride? Church. The church is the bride. And the church is arrayed and and ready for to be a spouse to Christ in this wonderful marriage day. So all of this celebration. In verse 9, it says, And he saith unto me, Right blessed are they which are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. People don't. People think, well, what will what will take place in heaven? What will be what will heaven? What will eternity be like? And you know, there's this there's this early 20th century kind of hallmarky view of heaven. And you know, remember the cartoons of the of the, the the cartoon figure sitting on the clouds strumming the harp. How many of you remember those cartoons, right? You know what I'm talking about. And just this like you know, they've got the little halo and they're sitting on the cloud, plunk 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 on the harp or whatever. And you know why people have that conception? Because what we fail to understand is that we were created for worship. I, we don't understand it. We don't, in many ways, we don't believe it. But the fact is this, just like, can you, can you imagine, just think of how you feel when something amazing happens and you celebrate. Whether it's the things that we already talked about, uh, it could be something very, very carnal, worldly, like a sports celebration. Just capture that moment, that feeling. What's the problem with those feelings in this life? <laughs> they don't last. All of the excitement and anticipation at, the, at, at the, the wedding day and the wedding celebration is a wonderful experience. But again, those moments, what? They don't last. Even a victory in a war lasts only so long, but the, the feeling of it just fades away. But the worship of our God, in some way, I believe that in some way, that, that it might not, I'm not saying that we'll be in an ecstatic 
exuberant state nonstop. But that sense of victory and wonder and awe and worship and celebration is, is what we were created for. So it's not just us floating around on clouds strumming our harps. It is a celebratory worship that what we have been created for, we have finally experienced. Again, I, in our earthly bodies, I don't think we can understand that. And can you imagine, can you imagine the experience of one who's, who's in their elderly years, their body has slipped into frailty and inability, only to be in heaven in a renewed state with a renewed energy and, and just to go from, in all of life, you know, we go on this, we start very young and incapable and we peak at, at whatever age to our physical and mental abilities and the closer we get to our last days, that begins to decline and then boom, we're ushered into the presence of the Lord. Wow. Pretty cool, huh? And here they are, falling at his feet. Here we are worshiping. There's a victory celebration. There's a marriage celebration. He just, John is just like taking this all in. John's an old man on the Isle of Patmos when he write, wrote this, if you remember. He just falls at his feet and worships. And I saw verse number, well, let's see. Uh, verse 10, I fell at his feet to worship him. But he, John made a mistake because he wasn't, he's just blown away by this whole thing. And so the angel is standing in front of him. And he's just like, i got to worship somebody. And so look what happens. It says in verse 10, I fell at his feet to worship him. He said unto me, see thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. I would, if you circle or underline in your Bible, Travis doesn't believe in that. I know you'll never. You've changed. Well, so you do mark and underline. All right, okay. If you do that, I mean, that's a key verse right there, isn't it? That's a key verse for understanding Revelation. And it's been my burden throughout this study, as we come to the end, to, to make sure we didn't get sidetracked into, into conjecture and speculation and, well, this sign of the time and that sign of the time, because the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Prophecy is supposed to direct our attention to Jesus, not the events of the world, but to Jesus. He's the one. He's the Savior. That's why we study prophecy. I had one of the... One of the I appreciated this. One of the folks in the church came up to me and was like, oh, when I heard we were studying Revelation, they said, I was like, oh boy. When I was a kid, they said, I heard about Revelation all the time. And I can, I can relate to some of that. But the fact is, often I think when people study the book of Revelation, it's just not the right emphasis put on it. Much should be made of Jesus. Anyway, enough about that. Let's move on. Verse 11. And I saw heaven opened. Now it gets, it gets cool. This, is, this passage here, you cannot... Mike was asking me before if I like, you know, Lord of the Rings and that kind of kind of stuff. And it had nothing to do with the study tonight, but he asked me that question tonight. And I just think of the most epic scenes that have ever been written, the most epic scenes that have ever been captured for or produced for film, whether it's in literature or in film. All of those scenes, why do we why do we so enjoy 
Why do we so enjoy seeing those, those, and I'm not talking about gruesome things. I'm talking about just the, the intense, you know, the, the, the good guys and the bad guys in conflict. Why do we enjoy seeing that? Because it's, well, go ahead. You've got to, yeah. And I think there's a sense of fulfillment in it. But that is what we desire. We all desire ultimate victory. And so we display it in our art. We display it in our literature and, and in our film. Well, this is the ultimate battle of good versus evil, of right over wrong. And here it comes. Verse 11. And I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that ye may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of captains, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of them that sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. And I saw the beast, and the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together, to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken. <laughs> Just like you see the armies amass. I mean, these, these, the, the magnificent army of King Jesus, and there's the Antichrist and the forces of evil, the most wicked horde that has ever been, that has ever been gathered in the, in the, course of human history, the most evil army that has ever been assembled, and they make ready their battle plans. And very simply it says, and the beast was taken. And with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and then that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. This battle was over before it started. It was the word of God that brought the earth into existence. And it is the word of God, simply the voice of Jesus, that will defeat the enemy in just a matter of seconds. Verse 20, and I saw, or chapter 20, verse 1, the scene continues. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, 
having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. We've seen the, remember from our previous studies, there's the beast who's the Antichrist and there's the false prophet, but the third is the dragon, that old serpent who is the devil. The devil is about to be dealt with now. And it says that this angel has a key in his hand of the bottomless pit and he's got a chain and he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan and bound him a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. This is interesting. And for those of you that want to be students of this, this is the introduction to what is referred to as the millennium, or the millennial reign of Christ. And so, well, I believe of no reason to assume that this is figurative. But, but to believe that this is literal, that there is a literal thousand years, a thousand year period yet to come. We've studied a seven year period. That seven year period is now coming to conclusion, thus beginning the 1000 year reign, which is also known as the kingdom of God. And so here's what happens. Verse 4, I saw thrones and they that sat upon them and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the... Now, when it says judgment was given unto them, I don't believe that this means that they were judged, but there is a kingdom and authority being set up. There is a system of government being established. Power is being delegated. But not just that, but he says, I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus. And the word of God, which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark on their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. You see, the believers, it's an interesting period because remember, what has happened during the seven-year tribulation? There's been a lot of judgment and many people have not received Christ and sadly, they meet their doom at this final battle. But there's a whole other group of people, particularly, particularly the nation of Israel. What has happened to believing Israel during this tribulation? Where have they been? Go ahead. They were, yeah, they, they, were, they were brought out and delivered. On eagle's wings was the, the figurative expression that we used. They were brought to a safe place. And so miraculously, remember, you had one during the seven years, you had 144,000 witnesses. You had the two witnesses in Jerusalem. And many people did become believers during this time. Well, they, the, the nation of Israel was 
preserved, was protected from the Antichrist while all the other nations were assembled at the Battle of Armageddon and destroyed. So now what happens to those people? What happens to that group? They're not, they weren't in the same time frame as you and I as the church age believers. These are tribulation age believers. What happens to those people? Anyone have a guess? They don't die and go to heaven. <laughs> That's not what happens. What takes place? Well, the, now the persecution is over because the devil has been bound for a thousand years. So, Frank, well, they don't reign. Well, if you looked at what happened, who were the ones who reign? The ones who'd already died. The ones who'd already died up until this time, and I believe you and I as well, depending on, depending on the will of God and our faithfulness to him, the previous generations are the one that come back and rule and reign. Well, someone has to be ruled and reigned. The kingdom, there's a new population. There's a whole new population of people that now come, they've come through the tribulation period and they come as believers, as a new people of God, they come into the kingdom of God, the literal physical kingdom of God, that will be seated and centered in Jerusalem. So again, this shouldn't surprise us because from a dispensational perspective, we understand that God has dealt with different groups of people through different times in history to show his glory. At the very beginning, he dealt with Adam and Eve and then a group of patriarchs like Abraham and, and well, like Noah and then Abraham. But after the, the patriarchal period, then what group of people did God show his grace through? Who? I heard it. Israel. But, now, but, but then God chose to not reveal his glory and grace primarily through Israel. Then God chose to show his glory and grace through who? Through the church. Through the church. But there is yet one final age coming. It is the kingdom age. And in the kingdom age, there will be a new reconstituted Israel, a new people of God in Jerusalem. That's the final dispensation. They won't, they're not the bride. They're not part of the marriage supper of the land. That's for the, the, the prior generations. This is a new kingdom people. Any questions? All right. <laughs> now, again, I, I said to you at the very beginning of this study that I'm presenting what's known as a premillennial view, a literal interpretation of Revelation. I will give you the disclaimer that there are faithful Bible believers, faithful Christians, who do not interpret it this way. They interpret it somewhat more figuratively. And... I can't do that. I try to be consistent with the way we saw the Old Testament prophecy fulfilled was very literal. I think we should also expect the, the future prophecies to be fulfilled very literally. So we're, present, we're understanding this from a, what's referred to as the premillennial position, that there is a literal 1,000-year kingdom coming. And there's so much that could be studied about that. I've just given you a little primer on it. Well, if you study it, you'll find that 
the life, the Bible teaches that the life spans will be greatly increased. So it, it teaches that people will live much, much longer. So you can do some more study on that, but it's, it's a pretty fascinating time. There's, there's information that we glean from here in Revelation, and then you can find more, um, more information in prophecies in Isaiah, talking about a future coming kingdom age. So, however, that's a thousand years. That's a long time, right? <laughs> now, verse 7, we've just fast-forwarded, though, all through the thousand years. Oh, thousand years over. <laughs> Did you catch it? Did you see it? Because it's gone. <laughs> all right, and now we're on verse 7. It's like, wait a minute here. There's a, like a thousand years, and then verse 7. And when the thousand years are expired, it's like, okay. Again, if you want to study that thousand years more, you've got to go back to some of the Old Testament prophecies. Yes, ma'am. Yes, I do think that is. So the first resurrection, the first resurrection would involve, I believe, those who were resurrected at the rapture as well as those who died during the tribulation as believers. Now, that's actually an interesting, an interesting concept because that would, there's another view about the timing of the rapture that that discussion, some people, they would put the rapture at this point right here at the very end of tribute of this so and and that would be some of the reason because they would time all the resurrection then i don't see it that way i would just encompass both of those as being referred to as the first resurrection so i would i i do think so yeah and i know and it's you know i wouldn't a lot of these things i'm not gonna like stake my my life on them you know i'm not gonna i'm not gonna go like the martyrs to the stake to, to espouse these views. We're just trying to understand this as best we can. But it's a very, that's a very good question. Yes, sir. That's a good, that's a good, that's a very good question. Jesus is referred to as the first fruits of the resurrection. In other words, he is the firstborn from the dead. Jesus' resurrection is proof to us that we also will be resurrected. The first resurrection is, and we'll see this more next week because it comes up, the first resurrection is the resurrection of believers. The second resurrection is the resurrection of unbelievers. And that's a, that's a, that's a trembling resurrection. We'll, we'll see that. So more about that next week, but those, are, those are, are very good questions. So now verse 7, the thousand years are up. Remember, the purpose of God calling a people is to reveal himself to humanity. That's why he didn't, he, that's why he chose Noah for a specific time to deliver a specific message. It wasn't all about Noah. It's about Noah and it's about the people who would witness Noah. It's, it's, it's for that. Not only that, but Israel. It wasn't all about Israel. It's to bring a Messiah. It's to show his glory through Israel. Part of the reason for the millennium is for God to teach humanity and the angelic beings something about himself. So something interesting happens. Remember, 
People live their lives for a thousand years. Families are established. Generations go on. Culture moves forward. All of these things take place. But Satan will be loosed for one last time. Remember, he has not had the power to influence humanity for a thousand years. He's been locked away. But have men and women, the men and women on earth, have their sin natures been removed? They're just as much human. But they live very much in a state like Eden. Very much in a state like the Garden of Eden during the millennium. Not exactly, but similar. A wonderful time. A prosperous time. They're not a generation that can say, well, if I could just talk face to face with God, then I would believe. They're a generation that has the opportunity. They're a a world that has the opportunity to speak with Jesus Face to face. Think about that, right? Now, it says, look what happens though. And shall go out, so Satan will deceive the nations, verse 8, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle. The number of whom is as the sand of the sea, and they that went upon the breadth of the earth encompassed the camp of the saints about the beloved city. So what has happened? Even people living in the most utopian of times, even people living in utopian of times, what happened? Or what will happen? They will be turned against God. Not all of them. But there will be people at the, at the end of the millennium who even then, even when they can see God, they can know Jesus, like Physically, Satan still is able to tempt them away. It reveals something about the human heart. Kathy. Yes. Right. Not from past church age. It is, it is, well, no, it wouldn't be the people who were saved during the tribulation, but it would be some of their offspring. Right. That's the only, that's the, yeah, the only, right, would be the offspring of those people a thousand years prior had come through the tribulation, the faithful remnant, and some of their, and they, remember, in this thousand years, a new civilization has been born. New kingdoms, new, new authorities, all under the control of, of Christ himself. But at the very end, the heart of humanity is seen that even in the best of circumstances, people say all the time, well, if I were, I, you know, if I were Adam or Eve, I wouldn't have made that decision. Well, this account shows us the heart of man. But again, this is going to happen in just a moment because they come around, they literally think, they, they, what is the beloved city here in, in verse number 9? What would the beloved city be? Jerusalem. Who's on the throne in Jerusalem? Jesus. They literally surround the city and say, can you imagine this? They say, we will overthrow Jesus. That's the plan. That's the battle plan. But is not, is not that the heart of all 
Christ rejecting mankind. Jesus does not belong on the throne, but I belong on the throne. It's just a heart of man. That's why we say we have this, you know, we think about the justice of God, the judgment of God, and we say, well, how could God, you know, I, I don't understand how, I don't understand the judgment of God. I mean, these are nice people. The fact is this, humanity is not so nice. Because we may be nice to each other, but the fact is, if we could overthrow God and put ourselves in that place, that has been the heart of sinful man. You see, because the ultimate sin is not to lie or cheat or steal. The ultimate sin is to say, I should be God. That's ultimately what, what Eve was tempted with, wasn't it? Don't eat the fruit. I mean, eat the fruit. Because when you eat the fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be what? You will be like God. The human story is the same from beginning to end. It's a wonder. It's, it's, it shouldn't surprise us that humanity is under judgment. It should surprise us that humanity has received grace and mercy. It's the mercy of God that should surprise us because at the beginning and at the very end, the story is the same. People turning their hearts toward themselves, setting themselves up as God. Because the ultimate question is not... The, remember... Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, not that I should have been a nicer person. Every knee, every tongue will confess what? Jesus is Lord. Because the heart of mankind is, I am Lord. What were you going to say? Right. That's that well put. Absolutely. Yes, sir. Right. I think now I don't have a perfect answer for that because that would be, you know, then I would know the mind of God. One of the reasons I see, though, is the idea of free will is a fascinating study throughout the scripture because all of those why questions and not in a perfect way, but in, in sufficient enough for me, all the why questions can be answered in the free will of man. One of the reasons I'm not comfortable with a very Calvinistic approach to the scripture, where God just, in that view, that all of this is just God planned it, God planned it this way, God planned it this way. Whereas I would see God is in ultimate control and allows all things to take place. But at the same time, by giving man this free will, if there's, in other words, if there's no opportunity, if there's no opportunity for man to choose evil, then has man really chose to follow God? Right? C.S. Lewis wrote a lot about that, so I would refer you to his writings better than my explanation, because I would just be parroting people who've explained it way better than I. There's really two answers. One is an answer that people will say, well, it's part of God working through man's free will and in, in revealing His glory. There's another group that will say we can never know. It's just God ordained it exactly to be this way and man has little to do with it. I don't think that's the answer. That's a rabbit trail, though. That could take us like into a lot of theological discussion. So I gave you, again, a very, very insufficient 
answer, but it can put you down a trajectory of study, which I'd be happy to have deeper conversations about. So, okay. Any other thoughts or questions on that? Yes. That, right. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, that's that's interesting, right? So that humanity, that the that those that are alive then, they've never tasted of evil, right? They've only tasted of 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 good, and so now it's set before them. Which side will you choose? Will you will you Submit to the Lordship of Christ, or will you make yourself Lord? And again, I don't think the question is any different for people today. It's just not as physically obvious, because there's nobody saying, hey, let's get an army together and surround Jerusalem and overthrow God, right? But is that not what the secular world around us is doing in many ways? And saying, hey, let's redefine what humanity even means. We gave the talk on Sunday morning. If you didn't, if you missed it, we, it's on YouTube about the whole LGBTQ movement and all of this. We see a whole movement of humanity, literally saying, "We will define what it means to be human." It's something that no generation has ever really dared do before. It's pretty bold, and I think it's the same heart that you see here in these final armies in the last days. But. Why? It's, it's sad. It's so sad because the Bible says the Lord has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. The sad thing is when there is such a loving king who only wants your good and your very best, why would you oppose him? And it says in verse number 10, or the end of verse number 9, that as they surround the city, fire comes down from God out of heaven and devours them. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's it. Done. Final chapter is written. Next week we'll look at the second resurrection, second death, and then we'll see the new heaven and the new earth. And that will bring us to the conclusion of the book of Revelation. So thank you so much for sticking with me through this study and for your participation. It's been encouraging to see people um, have a hunger to know and learn the word of God. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for these truths. Many are difficult for us to understand, but God, I pray that, again, as your word says, that we would see the testimony of Jesus. Lord, give us, give us a burden for people around us who... Lord, you desire to be, to be rescued. You desire all of mankind to repent and come to the knowledge of the truth. I pray that we'd be faithful in our witness and that we would reach out with compassion and, and, and boldness. Lord, we pray now that you'd bless this evening. I pray that in our prayer time we would draw close to you. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. We are so glad that you've taken the time to join us today. If you've been blessed by the message, 
If you have placed your faith in Jesus today, we want to hear from you. Maybe you still have questions about what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus. Please let us know, and we would love to answer those questions from the Bible. We would also be happy to provide you with the Bible and other free Christian resources to help you grow in your faith. You can email us at info at mountgraylockbaptist.com or send us a message on Facebook. You can also call us at 413-662-2107. We would love to hear from you, and our desire is to be a blessing to you in any way that we can. God bless.